0: Thank you. Welcome to the Meet Musings podcast, the show where we talk about different issues and disabilities that affect people emotionally, psychologically, physically, and mentally. We discuss health and well-being generally. We are amplifying the voices of people living with disabilities and limitations and breaking the stigmas. Our podcast is available on Podbean, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Pocketcast, Breaker, Amazon Podcast, TuneIn in and Alexa, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. We are also available on Listen Note, Radio Public, and iHeartRadio. Just search Meet Musings Podcast on any social media platform. Welcome!
1: Today, my guest is Takita Wears. Born four months premature, our mom never told anyone she was pregnant, and her pregnancy was discovered. When her mom was giving birth, she then gave up Takita for adoption and told siblings, two sisters and a brother, that she died at the hospital. What a great start in life. I'll leave you to tell your story as it is, Takita. Hello and welcome. My whole life, I knew I was adopted.
2: My my um, adopted mother and father always told me. So I guess as you know, as children, when you instill something, you don't have to sit down and talk to them about it. So they always told me as a baby. Okay. So it was never a surprise to me. My mother even gave me my adoption records to show me the history of my mother and how many kids she had and aspirations in life, that sort of thing. So I, I would read them from time to time growing up trying to imagine what she was like. It said she wanted to be a singer, a professional singer. It was funny because I remember one time I used to think, maybe she's Patti LaBelle. <laughs> uh-huh. So when I met her, she was very hesitant to meet me. What was your reaction when you met her? When I met her, she was crying so hard. She was apologizing and i believe she might have been apologizing because she felt like i was angry that she gave me up and that was never the case
1: were you angry that she left you?
2: i was only crying because i finally saw somebody that i looked like i finally saw a connection okay you know so and she was like oh well, i'm gonna hate telling your brothers and sisters and i didn't understand i didn't even ask her why I was just too in tune trying to figure out who I was, where I came from, who she was, you know, that type of thing. And then a few weeks later, my sister calls me on the phone and says, you know, she told us that you died. We didn't even know she was pregnant. We go to the hospital. They said she's having a baby. And uh, we had to lie. One of my brothers had to lie and act like he was the father because they wouldn't let anybody in just so he could see me and hold me. And um, they go home. My sister said they go home and they prep the house for me. And she comes home empty handed. And she was like, I, I had passed away. I died at the hospital. And that the hospital was going to bury me. That she didn't have to have that burden on her. And my, according to my sister, it just started a chain of events.
1: That must have been really devastating and shocking for you.
2: As far as like psychologically with my siblings. Yeah, yeah to me, and you know, like when you're adopted, it's funny, and I'm talking about myself, I can't speak for all adopted children, but when you're adopted, I would always be like, if the person that I had the deepest connection to, my mother, the woman pregnant with me, the woman who almost died giving birth to me, can walk away, then I've never expected anyone else in my life to stay. And if they left, it wouldn't bother me because that person walked away. And that that thought process bleeds onto relationships and family members and friends. So, you know, being that I'm wounded in that sense, mentally, as far as being left at a hospital, you get friends or you get in relationships. Anytime you're wounded and someone tries to heal you or fix you or help you get to the next step of getting healed, they're going to get some of that blood on them. So. I noticed that I bleed on every relationship in my life, my husband, my child, my friends, my family, coworkers, bosses, and so that's a a part of myself that I'm working on now. Okay, trying to make sure that I don't bleed on them because it wasn't their fight. You know what I mean? It's not their job to fix me; that I need to do it myself.
1: Absolutely, a mother is supposed to be the one who cares for you, who nurtures you, who protects you, who loves you through thick and thin. And when that mother is the one who abandons you, you feel such pain, such emotions go through your mind and you just don't understand how to relate with other people when that gap is there and it needs to be filled. And then you get angry and you take out your anger on the next available person. I quite understand how difficult that must have been for you. So that's the reason why you feel, you feel, I, I bet you feel angry? I feel, I don't think, I, I wouldn't say with
2: anger. I would just, I just felt like as children, when you're born and you have a parent, the first, that parent, no matter what your spiritual foundation is, Christian, Islam, Judaism, anything, you will always recognize your parent as a God, because when you cry, they make you, you know, they fix it. When you're hungry, they feed you, you know, that sort of thing. So that is, that's instilled in us, you know, that's, that's natural. So they will be God until you learn about whoever, you know, the supreme being is in your, your environment, in your world. Yeah. So But it never goes away. Even after learning it, it never goes away. So when you're born and your mother, you know, that's the first person you see outside of the doctor. That's the person that holds you. And that's the person you have a mental connection to, a spiritual connection to, a genetic connection to. So whatever she's thought, whatever she has eaten, whatever she's feeling, it's it's embedded in your DNA. And, you know, DNA is an information center. So anything that she goes through while she's pregnant mm-hmm. with you is embedded in you. So to, to I think in a natural sense, maybe unnatural, but in a natural sense to me, it was like that connection was broken. And the deepest connection that I've ever had in my life wasn't, you know, followed through with it. I wasn't important enough for her to stay. And you can't have a deeper connection than a mother and a child. So in my head, I was just like, if she could walk away, there's nothing in this world that would make anybody else have to stay if she could walk away.
1: Oh, that's true. That's true. What was your relationship with your adoptive parents? What was that like? Oh, it was great. I mean, my
2: mom, she was my best friend. She was my defender, my protector. She was my teacher everything. She was, and she was such a strong woman. Her mother died when she was like nine or 10. So she grew up pretty hard with her aunts who were pretty, pretty rough on her. But with me, she was very gentle when she needed to be hard. She was hard, but she always balanced it out with, I support you. I love you. I believe in you. You got this, you know, I'll never turn my back on you type relationship. My father, on the other hand, he grew up very rough and went to Vietnam and Later, he we found out he had PTSD, so it would explain the way me and him, he and I were. We had a very rocky, rough, we didn't have that father-daughter relationship, oh, this is my baby. We didn't have that. It was one of those situations where he treated me like an adult. Like, my dad would wake me up in the middle of the night and be like, oh, I can't pay the rent, or I don't know if the lights are going to be on, and I'm like eight or nine going to school worried about rent getting paid, and worried about lights, and worried about food. And um, he wasn't a supporter. He wasn't like, I love you. You're pretty. My dad grew up. It's funny because my dad has a name that doesn't give you a nickname. You know, his, his, his name was Clarence. But people called him Bobby. So I was like, Dad, why do they call you Bobby? And it was because he was so dark when he was born. He was they thought he was blue, like a bluish color. Okay. So the family would call him boy blue. And they just shortened it to Bobby. So because he grew up with this thing that made him feel like he was ugly because nobody instilled in him that he was handsome or he was a good dude. He would always call himself ugly. So he'd be like, I'm ugly. He would call himself, he would would talk, he was ugly. And then say how I look just like he once told me, um, not once, but I remember the first time he told me that when the social worker called and said that they had a baby for him. Because my mother couldn't have children and they had adopted a child. And three months in, the mother came and took them back. So when they put in for another one and they called and said I was available, I was in foster care. He said, when I saw you, you were just so black. I didn't think I wanted you. He was like, I didn't want you. You were just so dark. And then I was just like, dad, you know, so you already have it in your head that your mother didn't want you. Then you find out your daddy didn't want you. So the only like cheerleader I had growing up was my mother. I mean, my father was like, um, he was a professional victim, and what I mean by that is like, if you said that the sky was blue, and he said, "No, it's pretty cloudy," and he go, "No, look at it, the sky is blue," my dad would say, "Oh, well, then I guess I'm stupid, so I'm stupid then," you know, instead of saying, "Okay, we disagree," you know, so that's how I grew up. So I grew up. Um, fearing confrontation. I grew up fearing disappointing someone or making someone feel bad. So I would go out of my way, even in detriment to myself, to make other people feel good.
1: So that's down to the way your dad made you feel. You felt emotionally insecure. And that's coupled with the fact that you already had issues from being abandoned by your birth mother. But my adoptive parents were
2: even with his bad traits. My dad was a good guy. My mom was a beautiful woman, and so yeah, we grew. You know, my mother always wanted me to find my birth mother. That was always her thing. I want you to find her. I want you to know who you are. So yeah. So I mean, we had a great, we had a good relationship. We had a lot of rocky times. For the most part, I didn't have a bad childhood. I just had bad experiences.
1: So your mom, your adoptive mom tried to take the place of your mom and your birth mother and she gave you everything that your birth mother could not give you. Mm-hmm. But, oh, I'm so sorry about that. How did you move on from there and what was your relationship with your other siblings like?
2: As far as with my adoptive parents I'm an only child. Um, oh okay. Um, so I grew up by myself which intensified or heightened the the need for wanting to know who I was because I grew up by myself. I mean, I had a lot of cousins and stuff, but those aren't siblings. As far as my my biological siblings, we're off and on. I think it's hard for them to, even though I've known them for the last 22 years, at the end of the day, I think it's still hard for them to grasp that I exist. I mean, they call me. I have one sister. She's always trying to help me out and she does help me out. And She's great. You know, I have a brother who's always helping me out, but I think it's hard for them to, because they grew up together. They didn't grow up. with, yeah. So it's hard for them to see me as a sibling, sibling. They see me as a sibling, but they don't see me as like. One of them. Right, within their circle. yeah. And I noticed that through time when certain instances would come up, like um, when my biological mother had a stroke, I found out on Facebook and then it took me, you know, I had to call them to find out And then when she passed away a couple months ago, I found out on Facebook I had to call them, you know, stuff like that. So that stuff like that made me realize like I'm not one of them. I'm one of them, but I'm not one of them. Yeah. So the grand scheme of things, we have a good relationship. We have a good rapport. I know they love me and I love them to death. So nieces and nephews, you know, stuff like that. It's really crazy to hear somebody like, hey, auntie, you know, so like it makes me feel good, you know. So I loved him to death. I just think that, you know, it's just hard for everybody to be cohesive, or uh, yeah. not even cohesive, to be to be a strong unit because we didn't grow up as a unit, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. So yeah, but you know, you, one thing you have to realize is that sometimes people handle grief and, uh, grieve and mm-hmm. bereavement in different ways. So. Mm-hmm. For instance, I can't actually explain why they had to leave you to find out about the death of your birth mother on Facebook. But possibly they just didn't know how to reach out. They just didn't know how to handle the grief. They were dealing with it their own way. Most definitely. Yeah. yeah.
2: Most definitely. Well, And, you know, I take that into account. Like, I'm not one of those people that don't give the benefit of the doubt or try not to understand a position. And I get it because when my yes. mother died, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to do anything. You know, I pressed through. But even, you know, at the end of the day, you know, that feeling, the death of a parent is something that is not, there's nothing that compares to it because your entire world is built around them having your foundation. And now once they pass, your entire world looks different. In the same, like you realize that you don't have the support system that you thought you did growing up. Because they're not your responsibility. You know, you're not their responsibility. You're a niece. You're a, you're a cousin. You're not their child. So they don't have to help you. They don't have to listen to you. They don't even have to answer the phone when you call. You right. know what I'm saying? So yeah. once my mother passed, I saw that it was really her. It was really my dad that were the ones that that gave me that structure and gave me that love and support everybody else gave it to you, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't with the same intensity. It wasn't with the same amount of affection that, you know, that your parents get to you. So That's I can true. understand that. Like they, they had just found out it had just happened. And for me to expect them to call me, is kind of out of pocket, but at the same time, I guess, because I was caught up in emotion, I felt like I should have got a phone call, but that's emotion to speak and not realism, you know, not me being realistic to the yeah. situation.
1: That's true. Yeah. Because I know when my my parents passed away, some of my friends blamed me for not telling them. And I was right. like, I was in shock. I was dealing with something. I was dealing with grief. I was bereaved. I was like, I couldn't handle that. And then you you are supposed to be the ones calling me, checking yes, up on me. Yes, 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 so yes. you don't expect me to be telling the whole, calling the whole, and say, hey, Brian, I just lost my mom. Hey, you right. there. Yes. I just lost, you know. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. But, so. I know exactly you
2: mean. I get yeah. it. You know, it's funny because my mother died. She died in 2017 from lung cancer. Oh. Suddenly. And then in 2018, my father got diagnosed with lung cancer. He died the next year. And so... When my mother died, I couldn't be there for her because I was living in Atlanta and she was about 900 miles away. So I couldn't be there for her like I wanted to be. So when my father got diagnosed, I took a leave from my job to come take care of him while he did chemotherapy and radiation. And he was great in the beginning. And then stuff started going downhill. And, you know, being a caretaker of anybody is difficult, but especially a parent. And then he just died about four months later. It was crazy is is that when he passed away i had to, because i was the i'm the only child i had to put on a face of i got this i'm okay there's no problem you know you can call me. i'll call you you know what i mean and it was just like you had to hold in everything because you didn't want to break down in front of every, anybody because you don't want the oh it's going to be okay you don't want that cliche stuff you know it's going to be okay time will heal it he's in a better place i don't want to hear that you know what I mean? Because my mother's gone last year. My dad's gone now. Yeah. And I don't, it's not going to be okay. Because it's now you. it's just me. I'm married. Yes, I have a child. And what's funny is, is my husband, he um, proposed to me right after my mother passed away. Um, my dad gave him her ring that he bought for her. Aww. And he gave it to him to propose to me. And then the next year when he got sick and he was in the hospital, we just said we were planning a wedding in Atlanta. We we're going to have this big thing. And we just said when he was in the hospital, he said, uh, let's just do it. Because your dad is sick. Let's get married. And we got married in my dad's hospital room. We surprised. Him. So at least I had a parent there. You know, so it's crazy because like, yeah, like you said, you want people to call you, support you, yeah. help you, hold you up. And then sometimes people think that it's your responsibility to pull. you. So leave to them. them. Yeah. <laughs> which I find really upsetting sometimes. But that's that's a new way of thinking because, you know, generations ago, not even generations, maybe maybe like two generations ago, if somebody died, if the husband died, if the child died, if the parent died, everybody would come to your house with food. Everybody would come to your house to make sure you were okay. You didn't have to call them. You didn't have to ask them for anything. Your house would be bombarded with people, bombarded with food, bombarded Mm -hmm. with support. And nowadays, it's like you have to do all the work and reach out. And I don't know where the breakdown happened, but they don't do that no more. That that mindset is so gone. And I don't understand. I don't understand where we went wrong and what generation dropped the ball, because it had to be the parents of the generation that dropped the ball. You know what I mean? Yes, that's
1: true. Yeah, I think I think it's about. The um, uh, I think sometimes it's about religion, and about, I think sometimes it's just about people wanting to be in their own inner circle, people wanting to be in a cocoon, you know, not being not reaching out to others. So, I don't know where it started, and I don't know how it started. Well, as human beings, we are social beings and we don't survive very well in isolation so we should be able to reach out to people when they're grieving when they're celebrating i understand covid is on but when all that is fixed we should go back to the way things i mean we help out each other we reach out to each other and we show love and we display i mean that's the essence of humanity as you say It's something that I think needs to be fixed because it just doesn't really need to go on like that. No, it doesn't. And it's sad because you have
2: people out here who may not have people or they may have people and don't know to the extent that they have their support. You know, so they're not going to reach out. They're expecting these people to reach out to them and then they feel alone because now these same people are the same people that are trying to wait for their phone call. You shouldn't, you know, but it's just... We've dropped the ball in so many areas of life. I mean, this generation and the generation before me are a little different than what what our parents or their parents were like.
1: So you talked about being in Atlanta. At what point did you move to Atlanta? Um, well, I actually, had moved to
2: Atlanta in like 2000, 2001 for a few months. And it just wasn't my scene. It was my first time moving away from home. But get just moving up the street or getting an apartment, I moved to Atlanta from Connecticut. So it was a big, I didn't have a car. I wasn't, I didn't have city jobs. It was 9-11. So it wasn't in 2001. Yeah, so it was 9-11 had happened. You know, I was working at a hotel, so I lost all kinds of income. So I came back a few months later. After I come back, I'm dating and I end up meeting this guy. Well, I didn't meet this guy. My uncle was dating a woman. And he had been dating her for 15, 16 years. I've been going over her house since I was little. I knew her kids. And um, her son never even paid him any attention. I was young. I, you know, I wasn't paying him any attention. But once I moved back from Atlanta, the first time I ended up, he came to my house all of a sudden. I guess he saw me at a party and he knew where he, where we lived at. So he came knocking on my door and he invited me to a party and I went. And from there we started a relationship, but we kept it quiet because my uncle was dating his mother. Oh and we
1: <laughs> That's complicated.
2: Right. And we knew it was gonna be a problem. And his mother and my mother were best friends. Oh so, yeah, so we were like, don't say nothing. And eventually it got out. So then we didn't have to hide it anymore. But my mother was like, please don't date him. He has a history, a beating on his baby's mother. Oh, and wow. This got a third, and my uncle was like, Don't date him. I don't trust, you know, I love him like a son, but I don't want you dating him. And I'm like, You know what? It's good. Don't worry about it. Boom, boom. You know how we are. We, you know,
1: sometimes women think that they. You just feel like you're old enough to take your own decisions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you just want to fly. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. And so then
2: we're dating a couple of months, and things are okay. I can tell he was a little jealous and possessive, but it wasn't anything that was over the top, like something I couldn't deal with. Why was he jealous? You know what? I'm going to be honest. I'm not a man basher. I'm actually or I've actually criticized women way more than I talk about the, the you know, the misgivings of men. But most men, their ego fuels their personality as opposed to their personality. As opposed to their ego being a complement of their personality. Yes. Yes. So what happens is, is like they put on this thing, like I'm very confident. I'm very this, I'm very that. When in actuality, because they know who they are, they know who their friends are, what they've done, how they've attracted women or gotten women to be in relationships with them. They know the tactics, the mental Mm -hmm. things that they do as men. And they look at women as weaker. So what happens is, is when they get a woman because they know the tactics of men and they know what they've done and they've pulled you, for lack of a better term, they now feel like, well, I have to keep her in my grips because I know what I've done to get women. So they feel like we're so naive, we're so dumb, or we're so easy that if a man says hi, that the first thing we're going to do is pull our pants down and say, okay, (laughs) okay. (laughs) So instead of thinking, you know what, she has a mind of her own, she's strong, she's not so quote unquote easy or she's not one to lay down with every man that winks at her, looks at her, talks to her, says hi to her. So instead of thinking the best of us, they think the worst of the men and think that we're so naive that we fall for any gain given. So I think that's where the jealousy and the fear of women being nice to other men come in. You know what I mean? Because they know that they know what they've done. And I was, you know, so anyway, that's what it was. He was just, oh, I don't want you talking to him. I'm like, I'm not going to, you know, so in my head, being who I was, even though I've had confidence issues and daddy issues, there was no part of me that was going to be like, okay, I'm not going to talk to him. I was like, I'm not giving up my friends for you. I know them way before I even knew you, you know, I'm not doing that. So it would be that in a couple months in, we were sitting in his mom's house. We were watching Goodfellas. That's one of my favorite movies. And there's a scene in Goodfellas where the neighbor assaults the lady in the movie. Oh. And she calls her boyfriend and she's going, Oh my God, he beat me up. He hit me. And so it was because she asked for he he asked, he offered her a ride. So we're sitting there watching this scene. And my boyfriend is telling me, my ex-boyfriend, excuse me. It's telling me, don't you take no ride from no man. If I'm around, you don't take no ride. And if I'm not around, you just take the bus or you, you know, you walk. I say, excuse me, no. But if I've known somebody 20 years, like that woman known that man, I am not going to say, no, I don't want to ride because I have a boyfriend that I just met two months ago. I'm not (laughs) doing (laughs) that. So we go back and forth and he hits me. What? So I said, what? So I hit him back and we're fighting in the room. And His mother busts open the door and she says, she says to me, like I'm the culprit. She tells me to get out. And I understand that's her son, that's her house, that's his room. I get it because he had just broken up with his girlfriend and he didn't have a place to stay. So he was staying with his mother briefly. So anyway, she told me to get out. Mind you, she was my mother's best friend. She had broken up with my uncle at this point and she never told my mother. And I never told my mother because, I, you know, I just he just proved my mother right. You know, he beat up on his baby's mother. So I was like, you know what? He saw me fight back. He's not going to try it again. About three weeks later, we were driving in a car and he grabbed while he was driving. I'm in the passenger seat. He took his hand, wrapped it around my neck, slammed my face against the the passenger side window. And he just kept slamming my head on the window. Wow. 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 And I said, what the hell is going on? And I'm scared. We're driving in traffic. People see this. That that must have been terrifying. Man, it was. And so at that point, I was like, you know what? I can't, I can't. I'm scared now. Now you have instilled fear. Now, see, I always tell people when you're in an abusive relationship, abusive relationship, people always say, well, it couldn't be me. Or how did you let that happen? First of all, a comment like that is blaming the person that was getting beat up. Because now you're telling them that it's their fault that they stayed. Then you're telling them that you're smarter than them, that you wouldn't have stayed. But I always tell people that when a man is abusing you, he's not going to come out day one and be abusive. He's going to train you. He's going to like a dog. He's going to train you like a dog. He's going to give you the best of who he is, make you fall in love with the best of who he is, of who he knows how to be, I should say. And he's going to make you fall in love and make your spirit and your soul connect with the best of him. And then after that, once he knows he has you connected, then he instills upon you, you know, he'll drop little nuggets like the jealousy and the the possessiveness and all that stuff. He'll drop, he'll drop that and make you see what it is that's coming. But because you're so in awe of him, you're not thinking that it's going to be a, a thing. So then by the time it comes, you're trained, you know, not to say anything. You know what not to do. You know not to fight. And they know that. So that's what that was. And it was just like, I endured three years of it. And so one day he beat me for six hours off and on. What? Dumped me in the head with his boots on, put a gun to my head, choked me with a belt, kept punching me in the face, pulled my hair out.
1: And for six hours. And so... i I must say i must say you are strong and you are resilient (laughs) you know people say that to me all the time but because of
2: what i carry from what i've been through i don't feel it but everyone will tell me between the deaths of my parents and having gone through that and being adopted and all the other stuff in between i thank you for that i thank you but it's not like i say oh i'm I'm
1: strong. I can take it. No, 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 no. I, I, when when I'm talking about strength, it's not like physical strength. You have that inner strength from you that keeps you going when you just yeah. want to, you just want to fight and yeah. keep going and you're just wrestling. You just don't give up. Yes. Yeah. I was reading this morning, just this morning, I was reading somewhere. I think it was on the, it just popped up on my Alexa and it says like 40 about uh, violence against women, and it said something about it about 46% of men who killed women. They had a known history of violence. 59% of cases involved coercive controls, stalking, harassment, and physical, financial, emotional mistreatment. And one third of women killed by men in domestic violence reported the cases to police. And most times, the police don't do anything about it. They just class it as civil cases which need to be sorted out between the couples. But at the end of the day, some of these women actually lose their lives to this violence and that's not right. I'm actually happy that we are talking about this because domestic Violence cases have been on the rise. Things, the lockdown started just because I think people are just in each other's faces. Nobody's going out. Everybody's working from home, So the frustration is there. And then I think because debts are piling up, mortgages are there to be paid. People are being followed and some are losing their jobs. So... There's a lot of stress that is going on, and mental health is also suffering. So all this impacts on people in different ways, and they react differently. So emotional triggers are there. Something needs to be done right now. At the end of right. the day, some of them end up dying. You've come out of this relationship, and you're still you're still here. You're still talking. And what's crazy is because I told, when I tell the story, I tell people, it's like a
2: Lifetime movie. Like, even after he did that for the six hours, what's crazy is at the end of that six six hours. I mean,
1: beating for six hours.
2: Six hours. I've never, I've never experienced like that. I didn't even cry. It was like, he was punching me in the face like a man and I didn't even cry. He was choking me and I didn't cry. And then he was like, I should leave you. And I said, well, can you go? I was like, that's all I'm asking you. Just go. It's OK. And when I didn't beg him to stay, it was a thing like it triggered him like she's not begging me to stay. Like, what is that about? And it, and even after that day, like the next day he works at he works at a college and he was like, I can hide you in this college and nobody will find you. Wow. you know, he you know, he punched me in my forehead to the point where I had a knot on my face. Like it was really crazy. So anyway, even after all of that, I didn't leave because fear guides you when you're in an abusive relationship. Yeah. Fear Fear guides every decision you make, what you put on, how fast you drive, how slow. I I literally had to count two rings on my phone before I picked it up. If I picked it up on the first ring, he would have thought I was doing something that I was trying to hide. If I picked it up on the third ring, he would have thought I was doing something that I couldn't get to him fast enough. So I always had to pick up the phone on the second ring. If I went to the bathroom, I had to put the phone in my sock if I had a skirt on because I didn't want to miss the phone call. You know, it was literally everything I made for breakfast, dinner, lunch, anything I said, everything was guided by fear because that's how the relationship was.
1: That's not the way to leave. When you say you're in love with somebody and you just live in constant fear, you just don't feel free. It's not right. Even after all of that, I was
2: too scared to leave. And so then one day he just called me while I was at work and it was over on MySpace page. This is when MySpace was was dwindling down. And he said, you have a MySpace page. I told you not to be on MySpace. And he was cussing me out on the phone. And I called my mother. I said, I'm, I, I don't know what's causing me to tell you this right now. I said, but he's been beating me. And my mother said, I know. My mother said, I know he's been beating you, but I've been waiting for you to tell me. Wow. She said, I knew I couldn't say anything to you when I would bring up little stuff. Not in meeting him beating you, but the way that you would come over. And if he said, come, come to my mother's house, leave your mom's house. She said, the fact that you would do certain stuff like that and you stopped coming around the way you, you usually do. She said, because I, I wasn't living there with her. I was living with him. She said, I knew he was beating you, but I couldn't say anything. I had to wait for you to tell me. So called the domestic abuse hotline. And she said, I told her what was going on. And she said, what's your plan? I said, I'm going to go to my mom's house, get some clothes and go stay at my biological mother's house which is about a half hour away. And she said, are you going to go to work the next day? And I said, yes. She said, does he know where you work? I said, yes. She said, does he know where your mother lives? I said, yes. She said, so your plan is just to move locations, but keep the same routine. And I said, basically, she said, that's not going to work. Yeah, because he knows where he can get you. Exactly. She said, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you. Now, mind you, I was in the midst of buying my stuff to go to my, God, my, my biological mother's house. And she said, I don't want you to think I'm telling you to stay in a recent relationship, but I want you to know that you can't leave like this. You have to have a plan. So the best thing for you to do is go home with him and try to make sure everything is, you know, do the best you can. If he says sit on the sit on the table, she says sit on the table. He said, sit in the car, sit in the car. She said, because you don't want to trigger anything because anything will trigger them. She said, because if you leave now with no plan, you're putting everybody who's helping you in danger. You're putting your friends in danger and you're, you're putting yourself more than anything in danger. She said, more women die. Yeah. You're leaving
1: the relationship than they do while they're in it. Yeah. That's, so I had to that- go. That's, that's exactly why I, I, mean, I said with this uh, thing I, that came up this morning, it said one in three women eventually died because their partners or their ex-partners tugged them and hunted them down after leaving. Right. And I had a friend who was at a
2: jail, a women's prison. And she said to me that she had so many women in prison who went to jail for killing their partner because their partner wanted to kill them after they left. Oh, wow. Right. So after I left, so right after I went back home, I would sneak to a friend's house and I said, I heard you moving to Atlanta in a couple of weeks. Can I come with you? And she said, yeah, you can come with me. So I said, OK, I got to go. And I would run back home and all that kind of stuff. So it was one day she was like, I'm leaving tomorrow. I said, OK. So I told my family, I said, I'm ready to get my stuff out. So I knew his schedule back and forth. So for like the two weeks before I left, I made the arrangements that I needed to make, let my job know. No, I didn't even let my job know. I couldn't because I didn't want anything to get out. So he went to work. My family, my mother, my mom, my mother, and my father, my aunt, her boyfriend, my friend's boyfriend and an uncle went to the house and we packed up all our cars with the stuff we could fit in there. And we brought it back to my parents' home. And I packed my car up with stuff that I was going to take with me to Atlanta and My father was like, you could go stay at a hotel tonight. You could leave your car here. And I said, no, because I've known him to bash him. I've heard stories of him bashing in women's cars. I said, I need my car for Atlanta. So my father said, we'll drive to a hotel. And, you know, about a half hour away. I had changed my phone number that fast so he was calling me and it wasn't going through so instead of you know while we're on the highway my dad is in front of me in his truck and he sticks his hand out the window with his phone which to tell me to call him because I changed my number he didn't have it and I call him and he said you can't go back home because he's over there he's going crazy at the house yeah you're gonna have to stay at the hotel so I stayed at the hotel my friend came that night that I was leaving with and we left for Atlanta the next morning and I was I've been going 15 years Good on you.
1: You did what you had to do, and you took all the actions that you needed to That's really great. And you are alive today just because of that action. Who knows what could have happened? Great job. Well done.
2: I'm trying. I'm trying. I have a lot of wounds to heal, but, you know, in the midst of it, all well, like, you know what? Me crying about it, me reliving it. You know, there are moments when I have flashbacks of it and stuff like that. But it's not to the point where it, it deems me, you know, with the inability to function. So, but yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a journey. And sometimes I don't even think about it for a long period of time. It doesn't even pop in my head. Okay. So, where are you now with your life? Well, right now, I'm married. I'm living back in Connecticut since my parents passed away. You know, I own the house that they had. So my husband, he was married previous to me. So he has three children with his ex-wife. So he was willing to up and leave and come to Connecticut. His mom is in Atlanta. So we came back to Connecticut and we're living here now. It's been a rough, rough ride, but I'm a mother of a Soon to be 10-year-old. She was four months premature, just like I was. Um, oh. Yeah, I'm actually allergic to being pregnant, which is super weird. I had, when I was pregnant with her, I was close to six months, and my cervix started dilating, and they had to hospitalize me. And while I was hospitalized, I got what was called a saddle pulmonary embolism. Oh, I've
1: that. <laughs> pulmonary yes. embolism, yeah. Yeah.
2: So mines went through both branches of my lungs and the center part. So I had a little airway left and I'm down there by myself, which is at the time he was my boyfriend. And they kept saying, do you have anybody to call? And I said, oh, my boyfriend will be here tomorrow. They said, no. Do you have anybody to call? I said, he'll be here tomorrow. And they kept saying it. And I said, do you think I'm going to die? And they said, we're going to try to not let that happen. And so I'd be in the hospital and every day there would be like 30 or 40 people coming to see me. And I asked my nurse, I said, why do so many people come in my room? And she said, you don't understand. You're not supposed to be talking. You're not supposed to be alive. She said, the clock passed through your heart. She said, you told me one day you had a bad pain in your back. I said, yeah. She said, that was the clock passing. You were supposed to die in that moment. And she said, you're here, you're watching TV, you're joking, you're making us laugh. She said, that's why everybody is here looking at you. So because coming you're coming the- to look at the miracle girl. Exactly. Exactly. And the only thing that <laughs> saved my life, the only thing that saved my life is my pride would not let me use the bathroom in a bedpan because they told me, don't get up. Mm. And I couldn't let my pride let me use the bedpan. So I would take all the leads and wires out my arm and sneak to the bathroom. And I almost passed out three times. And that's when I said, something's not right. When I was laying down, I was fine. But when I walked, I would almost pass out because I had no oxygen. Yeah. So that's what made me say, oh, I have a little chest pain. And that's when they found it. But yeah, oh. so she was four months premature. She was 15 ounces. Now she's about to be 10 years old. She's no, they told me she might have cerebral palsy, quadriplegic, paraplegic, anything. She came home with just a little bit of oxygen, no no physical issues, and she's on the spectrum
1: of autism, but she's on the low end of the spectrum. Other than oh. that, she's perfectly fine. Oh, that's great to know. Oh, I'm really happy for you because you actually need, you deserve a break from all these emotional abuse and um, just having one little piece of happiness that would be I mean that was what I was expecting so I'm really glad that she's okay and she's doing well even though she has a tiny little bit of autism but it doesn't sound yeah. like it's something that bothers her. Now. And like I always
2: tell people too like I live my life with this this is my like mantra this is like my my saying like I don't have to agree with you to understand your position. And just because I understand your position doesn't mean I agree with it. So I always tell people, like, that's how you should live your life. Like, I don't have to. I can hear you. I can listen to you. You can listen to me. And that's how I try to be with friends, family. And that's what gets me through, mm-hmm. you know, and even in the worst of people, I can sometimes understand where they're coming from, how they got there. And that makes all the difference. If you could understand how a person got there it might make you more merciful to who they are and what actions or words that they say to you that may hurt you or, you know, go against you being a good person to them. It'll help you. And that's how I look at everything, even the worst of society. And people say that like it's cliche, oh, like I'm a good person. I see the good in everybody. It's not about seeing the good in everybody. It's about seeing the humanity, Mm -hmm. you know, like, so, and that's how I try to live. And I believe that the universe brings it back to me in forms of goodness, you know. And you know, I've had my 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 trials, my issues. Shoot, I'm having one now. But at the end of the day, I know it'll work out. And it's because I know that even in the worst of everything, even in mud, there's some good nutrient. Even in a lie, you can only make a lie up if there's some truth in it, you know. So everything has some goodness to it. So even through the worst issues that you're going through. There's something good in it, but it's up to you to pull it out, learn from it, and move on. Cause if you keep failing a test, you're gonna keep having to take that same test over and over again and it's gonna get harder and harder. That's how I that's how I try to do. It. And hopefully, like, you know, my daughter is the best thing out of everything that I've been through. She's the best thing that I've been able to be be blessed with, her and my husband. People a lot of times they'll have like a marriage and they'll have issues. But even through those issues, your love produced something something great right beautiful and you, you know. right and even if you don't have a child your love is still tangible in a way because a lot of times people can see your love they don't even have to know you're together they can just see it with the way that you are with one another the energy is like visible so oh, that's, that's how that's how i just try to make sure the universe and i don't do it for that you know a lot of people will do things for the purpose of getting goodness back If you do it with just the intent of being good and not looking for anything, you know, to reciprocate, then that's all that's way better than doing something, looking for like, you know, accolades and claps and pats on the back. Just do it just to do it. And when you get it back, it'll be even bigger
1: than if you were trying to do it to get seen. Beautiful. That's a great way to look at life. So I wonder, how did you mix your husband,
2: really? When I moved to Atlanta, about six months after I moved to Atlanta, I got a job, and he was one of the managers, and he was the one that actually showed me around the location. And he was flirting with me, but I took him as one of those guys that flirt with everybody, so I didn't take him seriously. And it was funny because he asked me I wanted to go for lunch, and I just thought he wanted to go to lunch and do Dutch. And I was broke as a joke, so I said no. I don't want to go because I didn't want to go. It embarrassed myself. I didn't have a buddy to pick because I'm actually asking me on a date. And so later on, as we got to know each other, he asked me out again, and we went out, and that was it. Amazing. And I always said, yo, know, I always said that any man that buys me ice cream is the one because i <laughs> <laughs> took me to buy an ice cream cone, and it might seem so low, like a bar set so low, but to me, it's just so innocent. And nice, and you know, so one day he said, Let's go, I'm gonna take you out. And I said, Okay. So
1: he took me and he took me to the ice cream place to get an ice cream. Cone. And I like, oh so through you, he, could yeah. he knew what to do to get you. Right. Right. <laughs> right. So we've been together about
2: 13 years. Oh, all and right. um, been married going on two years. So,
1: um, do you have any advice or? a last word for anybody that is going through any of the issues that you went through. As far as adoption, I mean that's that particular subject is
2: individual. Like, you know, it depends on what type of family you grew up with, the circumstances surrounding that. So really when it comes to adoption, I really don't have many words. All I can think of is is just you I don't think a person needs to see their gene- genealogical or genetic tree, their gene- genealogy tree, in order for them to understand who they are. Because you make yourself. You know what I mean? Like your your whoever raised you gives you that foundation. Whether it be messed up, brutal, whatever. It's up to you to pull yourself out of that. Your situations. You don't have to allow what you've been through or any traumas to shape you and make you. You can actually break free of that So, in in regards to that. like, But as far as like um, an abusive relationship, I always tell people I talk more so to the people that know people in abusive relationships. And I tell them all the time, like, please. Patience is a virtue when it comes to these folks. They don't. There are women who stay because they love the person or they think they do. They really don't love the abuser. They love the person that felt they fell in love with before the abuse. And people have to realize that. And it's not because they like getting beat on. It's not because they like the fear. It's not because they want to die. But it's because they're constantly looking for the person they fell in love with. And they think that person will come back. That person comes back after the beating. That person comes back after the verbal. That person comes back after all of the abuse. Right when he's finished. He, or he or she they turn into the person you fell in love with and that's what you wait for. And then you hope that person stays and you think you can do something to make them stay longer. Or in actuality, you can't, but you don't know that because you're constantly living on this hope because you fell in love with a person. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times fear, I don't know if people realize, like when you're, when you're afraid, there's a chemical in your brain that touches every muscle in your body mm-hmm. and your body responds to that and it's actually a poison. So that's why sometimes people get stiff, they can't move. Yeah. They're like can't. paralyzed. <laughs> right. So that fear every day, imagine living in fear 24 hours a day while you're at work, not even in the presence of the person that's abusing you. Uh-huh. While you're at school, while you're at your family's house, while you're at their, you know, their family's house, while you're at home, there's a constant level of fear in when you know that the person is willing to beat you because you might have looked at them wrong or you talked to somebody or you didn't come home fast enough or didn't answer the phone fast enough or you talked back to them, imagine the anger and the actions that will be put forth if you walked out the door. When people say, well, you come stay with me. That's dangerous. How many people have we seen women or men where they've left and the person goes to that person's house and kills everybody in the house? So it's not about a place to stay. It's about a plan. It's about making sure you're safe, making sure they can't find you. And people think that it's just easy to walk out the door and go stay with somebody.
0: Mm -hmm. It doesn't
2: work like that. And Mm -hmm. to the women that are getting abused, there is nothing wrong with them. I always say, it's not your fault, no matter what anybody says. If anybody says that it couldn't be me or wouldn't have been me or I would have killed them. No, ma'am, they don't know. They think they know. They don't know. And it's not your fault. I don't care if you spit in their face. Not to say that I don't think somebody should respond, but I, you know we all know that there are things that you know it's not your fault. And that, that fear, you have to use that fear as fuel to save your life. Use it as fuel to get to the next day. Because if you fear dying while you're there or getting beat while you're there, imagine the freedom you'll feel when you finally walked away and you know they probably won't find you you know if you if you go about it the right way you know yeah. so i always tell women if you need somebody to talk to i'm here if you need somebody to email i'm here if you just want to scream on the phone and cry and not have me say one word i'm here i won't even get advice i can just listen if you just want somebody i'll listen to you probably. because a lot of women feel alone like nobody will get them or they'll start giving them judgmental advice. You know, where the advice might be good, but it's coming from a judgmental point of view.
1: That's true. Thank you so much for that summary. And it it wraps up everything that I've uh, been thinking about. And People are often paralyzed by fear, the fear of the unknown, the fear of what's going to happen the fear of where they go the fear of what people will say well especially when children are involved how am i going to leave the children where am i going going to take what am i going to do you know so that's what actually stops them from taking actions and this is So i mean i thank you for
2: bringing me on i really do like i'm I like telling my story at the, because it's a healing process. When you say it out loud, sometimes it makes you, you know, and, you know, someone's actually interested. It makes you feel good. And uh-huh. I appreciate the, the invitation. And I appreciate your the whole, your whole demeanor, your energy, your
1: voice. You're beautiful. It's calming. Oh, thank so. you so much. I really appreciate you as well. Do you have anybody you want to give a shout out to? Yes, I'd like to say happy birthday. It's soon to be birthday to my daughter.
2: Oh, what's her birthday? Her birthday's Monday. Oh, happy birthday. Happy birthday right? What's she and called? She's Winter. Her name is Winter.
0: Happy you know birthday, I mean?
2: Winter. I know that's right. And I want to thank my husband. He's been very patient and he's been he's endured a lot over the last year and I want to say thank you and I apologize that he hasn't had to go on through that anything that I've contributed to that I want to apologize for that I just want to thank him he's a good man a lot of men wouldn't do what he has done you know leaving his children to come to a a city he's never lived in and live in a place so he picks up a home that he didn't grow up in So I want to thank him and tell him that I appreciate him and I love him for his support and his sacrifice.
1: So, yeah, so that's that. Oh, that's awesome. I really appreciate you actually saying thank you to him because not a lot of men, he's a good man. I mean, not a lot of men would abandon their family to just say, okay, I found another girl I'm really in love with. And I mean, people would say, are you out of your mind? You're leaving right. your family, you're leaving your safety net, you're going somewhere you don't know. So he's taking right. that leap of faith and he's talked with you and he's helped you through your storm. So I really appreciate that. I'm saying thank you very much on your behalf. For support on domestic violence and domestic abuse, the National Domestic Abuse Helpline and Web Chat is open for anyone who needs support in recognizing abuse. It's for women and young people. And the number is 808 20247
0: A big thank you to all our listeners who have been sending us messages through the message link. I would like to thank everyone who has listened in so far and contributed to this podcast. Thank you so much. We couldn't have done anything without you. Keep listening. Keep sharing, keep downloading, and keep liking. Thank you again.